Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Now, I can't believe it, but this is episode 25 of The Carbon Curve. When I started this podcast over a year ago, focusing exclusively on carbon removal, I had no idea we'd have 25 episodes worth of content. But here we are, with 25 episodes under our belt and more to come. One big reason we've made it this far is the help I've gotten from Lucia Simonelli in producing and editing this show over the last several months. So a huge thanks to Lucia for getting us this far. Her help has been especially valuable as I spend the vast majority of my time starting a new policy initiative on scaling carbon removal in Canada. We've also come this far because there seems to be no shortage of new developments in the carbon removal field. Companies, nonprofits, and governments are consistently pushing the boundaries of what's possible in meeting our climate goals by scaling up this much-needed suite of climate technologies. So I'm hopeful we'll have a chance to do another 25 episodes. And I want to thank all of my listeners for joining me on this journey so far. This episode is about a topic I probably should have covered 24 episodes ago, and that's carbon storage. How are we going to safely and securely put away all this carbon we've been pulling out of the atmosphere? This question hasn't received anywhere near the amount of attention it deserves, and it could prove to be one of the biggest bottlenecks to scaling up CDR in the U.S. and elsewhere. Luckily, my guests today are experts on this topic, and so today we're going to dig deep on what it takes to securely store CO2 underground. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at carboncurve.substack.com. And if you'd like to get in touch, shoot me an email at naeem at carboncurve.co. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. My guests today are Jack Andreessen and Dr. Claire Nelson. Jack Andreessen covers carbon management policy for Breakthrough Energy. In this role, he works on policy across NGOs, federal and state governments, industry and startups in direct air capture and carbon capture and storage. Previous to this role, he was an energy policy analyst at the Climate Reality Project and worked for Duke Energy. Breakthrough Energy is accelerating the net zero transformation by supporting cutting edge research and development, investing in companies that turn green ideas into clean products, and advocating for policies that speed innovation from lab to market. Through investment vehicles, philanthropic programs, policy and advocacy efforts, and other initiatives, Breakthrough Energy works with a global network of partners to accelerate the technologies we need to build a carbon-free economy. I'm also here with Dr. Claire Nelson, who is a geochemist with expertise on geologic carbon storage and in-situ mineralization in basalt. She is currently a postdoctoral research scientist at Columbia University, as well as the co-founder and chief science officer of CELA. CELA is a technology startup developing a novel method of carbon storage in basaltic rocks. CELA's method involved in-situ injections of carbon dioxide underground, where CO2 reacts with the basaltic rocks and is converted into a stable solid form for permanent and verifiable storage. I'm really excited to get into carbon storage on this podcast. It's not something we've covered a lot of, and so I'm really glad to have two foremost experts in this space joining the carbon curve to discuss geologic storage. Let's start with you, Jack. I'm excited to dedicate an episode of Carbon Curve to geologic storage. And there's kind of this tendency in the carbon removal dialogue to focus on the capture part of the technology. But we often miss this critical second part of the process, storage, 
without which we really can't achieve through removal. So why don't we begin with some basics? How do you define geologic storage of carbon dioxide? Thanks for having me on, Naeem. You know, long, long time listener, first time caller uh, applies to me. So I think geologic storage, you're absolutely correct. You know, a lot of the time, money, efforts, airwaves, news stories are, are written about the capture of the removal side of CO2, which is completely understandable. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the molecule that needs to get out of the atmosphere and into some place where we can, you know, store it safely. In this case, geologic storage. When most people reference geologic storage, we're talking about this in situ or underground version of geologic storage. So this is generally speaking, deep underground, 800 meters plus that, that CO2 is in a super critical or dissolved in water state. And then, yeah, that as it goes into whatever geology it's being stored in, and I think we'll get into those different geologies later, there's a number of different ways that it stays underneath, but that's all to reference that we either pump it incredibly deep underground where it stays because of geophysics. And then you could, I guess, technically, because it is using geology's count XC2 mineralization, which is just not below ground, right? Above ground CO2 storage, where you're mineralizing CO2 onto different types of, of rocks like brucite, or which is a magnesium hydroxide, or all, all sorts of different wonderful rocks that you can, you can mineralize CO2 onto. That's really cool. And Claire, would you say your definition or how you think about storage of CO2 is roughly the same, or would you adapt that in any way? Yeah, I think Jack covered it well. There's largely two categories of geologic storage. And I think about it like traditional storage, which has been done for decades in oil and gas, mostly for the enhanced oil recovery. So that's injecting CO2 into void spaces underground where there used to be oil. So if oil, which is a liquid, can remain trapped underground for millions of years, then you can essentially easily and safely reverse that process by putting liquid or supercritical CO2 back into those spaces where it's sealed underground by a geologic formation that has low, no permeability. Um, and then the other kind of more novel space is developing in-situ storage in novel reservoirs, meaning in new types of rocks underground. And the most research has been carbon storage in basalt, where the CO2, instead of just hanging out in void spaces underground, it actually reacts with the rock and transforms into another state. So you're removing CO2 from being a gas. So really just two different types, like traditional, which is done in sedimentary rocks, and then in-situ mineralization, which is in volcanic rocks. That's really great. And, you know, we know that the earth cycles carbon in different ways and on different timescales. And we hear so many conversations about permanence and durability. Carbon removal pathways tap into the earth cycles in various ways, right? So where does geologic storage fall in terms of carbon cycles? And why is this especially important in the context of removing emissions generated by the combustion of fossil fuels? The reason why climate change is bad <laughs> is because we're taking carbon out of the earth in the form of oil and burning it and releasing it to the atmosphere. And that carbon doesn't currently participate in the carbon cycle. And that's because a geologic carbon cycle happens on million-year timescales. So some organic carbon millions of years ago was buried and isolated from the atmosphere, never got a chance to decompose. So when organic matter decomposes, it releases CO2 back into the air. So 
underground, this organic matter, after millions of years, t- changes form into oil or gas. And it's crucially isolated from the current ocean atmosphere system, which is regulated by mostly carbonate and silicate weathering cycles. Um, that's the overarching carbon cycle or called the geologic carbon cycle. Most of us, when we think about the carbon cycle, we think about photosynthesis and plants, but that really doesn't have a huge effect on long-term climate. It's really cycling of carbon from these inorganic or geologic reservoirs like rocks to the atmosphere to dissolve in ocean, and eventually those become rocks again. So by removing carbon that is not currently participating in the carbon cycle, that's what's causing this imbalance and this climate change effect. But the good news is we can essentially think about geologic storage as the reverse of that. We put CO2 that's currently in atmosphere-controlling climate back into those geologic reservoirs. It's buried and isolated from the atmosphere permanently. So that effect is reversed. Essentially just doing the oil and gas industry in reverse. And because this carbon that we've been emitting over the past several hundred years (laughs) since the Industrial Revolution was isolated from the current surficial processes, then geologic storage is something that's totally crucial to help us get back to pre-industrial levels because plants, although they're very helpful and they can grow really quickly, I personally don't think that we have the land use to just have the organic kind of biologic carbon cycle really get us to where we need because that's not what we messed up in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Jack, would you add anything to that? Not of my own writing, Claire hits it right on the head there. The other thing I would say is if someone's looking for a paper that details why what Claire said is really important, there's a paper called From Net Zero Science Origin and Implications by Miles Dowen, Eli Mitchell-Larsen, and Cecile Giardine that basically lays out exactly what Claire was discussing, that net zero accounting as it's put into whether a company is announcing a net zero commitment, a country is announcing a net zero commitment, these usually apply to a particular year, whether it's 2030 or 2050. However, the net zero-ness about that commitment needs to be over a long period of time. And so given that uh, CO2 emissions stay in the atmosphere for a long period of time, they then should be overwhelmingly matched with, as Claire mentioned, the sort of reverse of that action, putting it back underground to ensure that that net zero Yes, happens at 2050, but stays for hundreds to thousands of years. Um, And that paper does a really good job of laying out both qualitatively and quantitatively why that needs to happen. Yeah, and that's super important. We'll put that in the show notes, but I think that's helpful in terms of bringing all of this conversation around carbon cycles and how we think about the durability of carbon storage in the context of net zero, which is what we're all trying to drive towards. So let's dig into some of the different types and methods of geologic storage. Could you, Jack, maybe first touch on some of the promising natural formations, such as saline, basalt, shale, as well as some of the more industrial contexts, such as oil and gas reservoirs and coal seams? Yeah. So the humble sandstone, one of the sedimentary basins, is one of my favorite rocks. I think it'll be the bedrock of CO2 storage. We've been storing in sedimentary basins for decades. Sleipner, the, the largest project up in Norway, has been going since 1996, was the first injection but we've been working on this and, and injecting even longer. So you've got sedimentary basins. A type of sedimentary basin is a saline aquifer. Saline aquifer just means that within the sedimentary basin, within the sandstone, the areas in between, so the sandstone is actually kind of like a sponge. It has little 
pores inside of it. And those pores are filled with a briny water. So this is just a, a salty water. Sedimentary basins and, and saline aquifers are great because they're porous and they're permeable, which is what we need for injection. So you have porous, which means you have space in between or you have gaps in the rock that can take the CO2 as you inject into it. And it's also permeable, meaning that CO2 can flow between the pores. So you don't just have isolated pockets, but you actually have a sort of system that the CO2 can flow through. In sedimentary basins, these are also often the geologies where you'll find oil and gas present. Generally speaking, most of today's CO2 is stored in saline aquifers. The CO2 that's stored in the United States right now is being stored in saline aquifer. The one dedicated CO2 storage project that we have, which is the Archer Daniels Midland bioethanol facility in Illinois, is storing into the Mount Simon sandstone, I believe. Then you've got oil and gas reservoirs, which are also sandstones or potentially carbonates. As Claire mentioned previously, the same geophysics that keep oil and gas in the ground are very likely to keep CO2 in the ground. So these are depleted oil and gas reservoirs. There is no oil and gas present anymore in these unless they're using enhanced oil recovery in which that's a slightly different stuff for dedicated storage, although some CO2 does remain. Depleted oil and gas reservoirs are by nature sedimentary basins. And this is what the Weyburn Middale project in Canada, which is doing about a million tons a year of storage, is using depleted oil and gas reservoirs. You've also got coal seams, and although I don't believe there's a coal seam project globally, definitely not in the U.S. right now, essentially you've got unminable coal seams. The notable difference about coal seams is you don't necessarily need to get the CO2 to a supercritical phase to inject into coal, and so you can inject at shallower depths. In a saline aquifer, you need to go at least 800 meters underground. Coal seams, you can actually go about 200 meters underground. The reason that coal is useful is because coal preferentially adsorbs CO2 over methane. So you put the CO2 gas over, over the coal and it adsorbs it. And I am not going to comment on the igneous rocks. I'll leave that to Claire. That's her expertise. Thanks. Yeah, I did not know that about coal seams. Learn something new every day. Yeah, so Jack fully described what I think of as more traditional geologic storage. Like he said, we've been doing this for decades in the oil and gas industry and from the project in Norway. But a newer area of research and development is using igneous rocks, which means rocks that form from magma or volcanoes, as opposed to sedimentary rocks, which are rocks that form from sediments accumulating in an ocean usually. So the most commonly known of the igneous rocks is basalt, thanks to a lot of the groundbreaking research and development that's been going on in Iceland as part of the CarbFix project, which is now spun out into a startup. And there they've been experimenting with different ways of injecting CO2 dissolved in water into shallow basaltic aquifers. So Iceland's a bit special because it's a rift volcano. So it's very porous and very permeable. Some of the highest permeabilities in the world when it comes to basalt. And so you can inject a lot of stuff underground and the benefits of injecting CO2 dissolved in water is that you don't need a cap rock or that geophysical structural formation that seals the CO2 down there. Because once the CO2 gets dissolved in water, it's no longer in a buoyant, leakable phase. And there's another company, 4401, working on this in a different type of igneous rock called peridotite, which has lots of magnesium. So a huge potential to really rapidly carbonate magnesium and form magnesium carbonates. And that's currently being developed in Oman. And there was one other pilot project developing carbon storage and basalt that injected actually supercritical CO2 into a deep 
deeper basaltic reservoir in the Pacific Northwest. And that was done out of the Pacific Northwest National Lab called the Wallula Pilot. So really three, only three ways that this is being researched and the only commercial pathway that this type of carbon storage is going is injecting CO2 dissolved in water. So as I mentioned earlier, the inorganic carbon cycle has to do with carbon being transformed from different phases or states of being. And silicate rocks or igneous rocks, particularly rocks like basalt, when they chemically react with CO2, they dissolve the CO2 and the rock. So the CO2 gets transformed from a gaseous state as CO2 into a dissolved state as bicarbonate or carbonate. So that's initially trapping the CO2. It's kind of the basis of enhanced weathering technology. So just getting the CO2 into that state, which is commonly called alkalinity, that is considered permanent storage in surficial contexts. Basalt and um, peridotite and other rocks, igneous rocks, have lots of calcium, magnesium, and iron. And these elements are special because they have a two plus charge. So they actually bind with that dissolved carbonate anion and precipitate, meaning they grow out of solution into a carbonate mineral. So like I said earlier, you're fully removing the CO2 from being part of the <clears throat> surface exchanges of CO2 from the hydrosphere, the atmosphere, and to the lithosphere or biosphere. So that's something that's really kind of attractive and appealing about developing these new technologies for basalt carbon storage because of the potential for mineral trapping. Whereas in sedimentary basins, the major trapping mechanism over the 100 to 1,000 year timescales is structural or capillary trapping, which I don't need to define that. But basically, the majority of the CO2 remains in a CO2 pure phase, so in a buoyant leakable phase. Over some time, you do get solubility trapping, as Jack was saying, the CO2 can dissolve into that salty water that hangs out in the pores. And eventually you do get a small amount of mineral trapping, but sandstones and sedimentary basins generally don't have as much of those divalent metal cations that I mentioned. So this is definitely considered a very novel technology and needs kind of a lot of work. That's what I'm working on at Sela is trying to come up with a new way to commercialize this that's different than the state of the art. And so one of the things that Jack mentioned about shale, which was conventionally thought of as a cap rock because it's low permeability and it sometimes seals stuff down there, the oil and gas industry thinks of basalt in the same way. So 20 years ago or so, my supervisor, Dave Goldberg at Columbia, has been working on this for forever. And he often says how at the very beginning, people were like, you want to store carbon in basalt? you're crazy. You're out of your mind. That's insane because basalt kind of usually can be very low permeability and act as a cap rock, both in geothermal settings as well as oil and gas settings. The benefit of that is that means that in these basaltic landscapes, sometimes there are these low permeability seal flows or like just layers, I guess, that are low permeability and can be a cap rock. So there's really a lot of space and potential to develop a method of storing pure phase or supercritical CO2 into basalts, like what they experimented with and demonstrated at Wallula. And that's exactly what we're working on in Sela is just kind of carrying the torch on that and continuing to develop a method that's injecting pure CO2 into basalts as opposed to CO2 dissolved in water. And I assume that by injecting pure CO2 
we are reducing some of the processing that's necessary after the capture phase. And then there's some efficiencies gained by that as well. Is that right? You can actually use the water dissolution process to capture CO2. So that's what they're doing in Iceland is they're actually using that as the capture mechanism to capture CO2 from a geothermal power plant. But not using water or experimenting with pure phase CO2 has a lot of potential benefits just because yeah, you can get a lot more CO2 into each hole and you might not need the extremely high permeability that they see in Iceland because if you inject a lot of water, water is not compressible. So you really need great flow so that you can pull that water back up out of the reservoir somewhere else and maintain a zero pressure differential. And then the other thing that is really exciting is a lot of the research that came out of the Wallula pilot in the Pacific Northwest, because they injected only CO2 and no water, showed that there's actually a lot of reactivity between CO2 and silicate minerals themselves. So CO2 that's wet with a little water that's already down there, and the reaction kinetics and the carbonation efficiencies are still high. And some would say that they're actually faster, (laughs) that those silicate minerals dissolve faster when there's more CO2 and less water. So we don't need to fully dissolve the CO2 into the water in order to induce those geochemical reactions. But this is something that's, like I said, novel and really poorly understood. In fact, none of our subsurface reactive transport models that we learn a lot of this stuff about through simulations. That's what my research is now at Columbia And those models actually don't account for those direct CO2 and silicate mineral reactions. They all rely on the reactivity being mediated by the aqueous phase, meaning the CO2 needs to fully dissolve in the groundwater. And then those reactions kick in in the model. So we really don't know nearly as much as we need to about this. And we've learned a lot from the experiments that have happened. And we've learned a good amount from models. But we really need to go out in the field and, and try this. I mean, the earth is very complex and no two basalts are the same. So that's kind of why I started the company because it was the fastest way to <laughs> raise money and do a pilot because, yeah, that's just, just the best way to learn about this. I'd love to learn more about just the potential for scale, right? And to get a sense of scale, like how much geologic storage capacity is there even theoretically available, let's say, in the U.S. and and then globally. Jack, do you mind taking that on? And can you give us a sense of the magnitude of emissions that we need to remove and how our geologic storage capacity compares with this? Yeah, totally. So before I throw out some incredibly large numbers, I want to couch this in. There's a difference between, you know, technical feasibility and actual capacity, or rather, actual capacity and technical feasibility, right? So you you have ranges of numbers that are, the reason there's a range is because you have on a higher estimate, you know, just how much of a certain type of geology do we do we even have, let alone if we could inject in it or not, what are the specific site characterizations that would make a good quality reservoir for injection or not. So take everything I say with a small grain of salt, but even the numbers here are so large that I think we'll get a pretty clear picture. So just in the United States on sedimentary basins and saline aquifers, there's anywhere from 2,000 to 21,000 billion metric tons of storage potential. In coal seams, you have 54 to 113 billion metric tons of potential in the United States. Generally speaking, even if you take the lowest estimates of potential in the United States across geologies, we're in the thousands of billions of metric tons of storage. In the U.S. alone, 
which is enough to store our emissions, which is about 6 billion tons a year, or the globe's, which is about 40 billion tons a year for decades, if not centuries. Globally, the estimates I've seen are anywhere from 10 to 20 trillion tons. And we can compare that to a lifetime of human emissions at 1.5 to 2 trillion tons, somewhere in there. So I frequently say, you know, if we can capture it or we can remove it, we can store it. The capacity to store in geologies is not my concern. And that large trillion, 10 to trillion ton number globally as well, that doesn't even include, there, there's a number of entire continents that we've essentially haven't characterized and don't really have a good understanding of the geologies associated with them. So there's a chance that number is, is even higher than that. So we have plenty of, of geologic storage capacity. Right. And like you said, if we can remove it or we can capture it, we can store it. So what are some of the major obstacles that are impeding us from actually achieving this kind of storage at scale in the time frame that we're talking about? If we can capture it, we can store it. The flip side of that is there has to be a financial case to capture it or remove it. We have to have a reason to pull the CO2 out of the air. And over the last, it looks like 15 years now, in 2008, there was a, a tax credit that went into the, the tax code, which is called 45Q. 45Q pays industrial facilities or power plants and now direct air capture facilities to store CO2 underground or use it in a long-lived product or use it for enhanced oil recovery. When it was first introduced in 2008, it was for relatively low dollar amounts, 10 and $20 a ton, whether you're storing it geologically or, or using it for something. And that wasn't really enough to make financial sense for most power industrial facilities to retrofit with a CCS plant or build a new facility with CCS. And that kind of stayed true, although there was an upping in the credit in 2018 to 30 and $50 still wasn't really enough for most power plants or industrial facilities. In 2001, via the Inflation Reduction Act, there was a relatively large increase where now it's $85 for dedicated storage, it's $60 for enhanced oil recovery or, or use in a utilization project for industrial and power sector CCS. And it's now $180 a ton for direct air capture dedicated storage and $130 for EOR or, or utilization. And so the point being, this really starts out at the economic case for capture, and that economic case needs to be baked in to long-term policy. So this isn't something you can just start up and you know have a couple of years of 45Q at these levels and think that that's going to sustain the industry. You need dedicated long-term policy support because capturing CO2, whether it's an industrial power sector or out of the ambient air, is, is technically challenging and capital intensive. And you need that long-term policy support to be able to allow companies to deploy the necessary capital over long periods of time to make these investments worthwhile and the cost of this technology then come down. So on the capture side, you know, you have 45Q, there are things that you could add to policy support, some sort of carbon fee, pollution fee, direct government procurement of CO2, so purchasing CO2 as sort of a, of a waste product. That's one area that's, that has, has been holding geologic storage back or, in, or the, the greater sort of carbon management sector. The second is the place where we store long-term CO2 in the United States. That sits in the regulatory regime under a thing called Class 6 wells. As of now, there have only been two ever issued in the United States. There is now a growing backlog of projects. Class 6 wells fall underneath um, the Underground Injection Control Program at the EPA. And I know that we'll later we'll talk 
more about primacy, but essentially there's a really importantly detailed and thorough application process to receive a class six permit. And those have just taken a little while up until now. So you have this sort of choke point at the moment in terms of getting this permit. If you don't have the permit, you can't inject into the subsurface. So that's that's one place. I should mention that class six wells, if you're on private lands, this is EPA. If you're on federal lands, those injection wells are regulated by BLM, Bureau of Land Management. And if you're an offshore, it's the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM. So we have actually three different regulatory regimes for storing CO2 in the subsurface. Class six wells are for dedicated storage. Class two wells are for enhanced oil recovery. And finally, there are legal regimes and a number of different legal issues, such as unitization, amalgamation, long-term stewardship of the CO2 plume, and poor space ownership. We don't need to go into detail on all of them, but they all add to the total time it takes to put these projects together. And having a clear, defined legal, regulatory, and policy regime across federal and state constituencies is going to be incredibly important to the long-term success of carbon storage and has been holding it back up until now. Let's actually double-click on the permitting piece because it seems really important. Are there types of geologic storage for which permitting processes aren't even in, in place yet? Yeah, and Claire can definitely speak to this at a longer length, and I'll turn it over here to her quickly. But essentially, the Class six permitting process for dedicated CO2 storage was initially made with sedimentary basins in mind because that's what we had had stored CO2 in. Historically, all of the data that was gathered to build the CO, to, to build the class six regulations was built on sedimentary basin storage. It's like 14 million tons of successfully stored CO2 in sedimentary basins or built out the actual class six program itself. And so unsurprisingly, there are different geophysical and, and geochemical realities about storing in sedimentary basins versus storing in igneous formations. And although at the moment, completely technically possible to get a class six well into an igneous formation in the United States, like the Pacific Northwest basalts, there are a number of unique characteristics about injecting into the igneous rocks that make it maybe difficult to do, techno-economically speaking. Whereas, you know, there's nothing actually preventing someone from getting a class six well to inject into basalts, literally. But there are a number of pieces of that regulation that don't lend themselves well to basalt injection. I can, I'll let Claire describe, you know, what those are and, and why that is. Yeah, I think that's a, a common misconception that I hear in the storage space, that class six wells are not for igneous rocks, like technically they can be. They're just not appropriate for this type of storage technology in some cases. And because this is part of the EPA, it was actually from the Safe Water Drinking Act. So the whole permit is really focused on protecting drinking water aquifers from CO2 leakage. And the place where this is being commercialized in Iceland, they're injecting into a shallow aquifer, which is essentially what the EPA would consider a drinking water aquifer. They inject about 500 meters deep straight into a freshwater aquifer. So the state of the art for mineralization, which is shallow water dissolved CO2 into a freshwater aquifer, would definitely give some people at the EPA a lot of anxiety. And, <laughs> and yeah, so the major bottleneck here is permitting. It costs a lot of money to get these permits. You need to have an airtight reservoir characterization. You need to have drilled some wells in most cases and really understanding 
where are your plumes going to go? So there's extremely stringent requirements around the caprock integrity and the wellbore integrity and also long-term monitoring. So you need to know for sure that your CO2 plume is not going to go where you don't think it's going to go and that it's going to stay there forever. And so that's an issue with the salt because as I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of issues with our modeling. Like our models are fundamentally more complex than the models that are used to predict the distribution of a CO2 plume in sedimentary reservoirs because they rely on a lot of kinetic reaction rates and parameters. We don't really know that much about how CO2 and water flow through a fractured medium, which is like basalts. Most of the permeability comes from fractures. So our models aren't amazing at characterizing this stuff. And a lot of the different simulators and software that we use don't produce the same results. So we really need to step it up in our modeling game because that's basically what you need to hand over to the EPA to get a permit is we have these airtight models. We know exactly what's going to happen. We know exactly where the plume's going to be. And we just honestly don't know that in, in the carbon storage and basalt space in the scientific community. So that's kind of the first order of business is we really need to do more modeling studies and also more pilots and really make sure that our models are properly calibrated and that we're not knob turning, as some people call it, and that they're very parameterized. So I think that's particularly a bottleneck with getting these permits. And then on top of that, like Jack mentioned, is the cost. So some of these sedimentary reservoirs, you can inject millions or tens of millions of tons into one well because you have that super porous and permeable sandstone. A lot of the time, the cap rock is actually an anticline, meaning that it creates like a upside down curve. So you're like a bowl turned upside down on a table. If you inject something into it, you're going to know pretty much because of the structure that it'll stay in that area. So it won't flow out laterally to a large extent. And those types of structures aren't as common in basalt. So we don't know as much about where the CO2 is going to flow and how far and how quickly. So that capacity issue is also a thing we don't know as much. And it's definitely harder to prove that one specific area or reservoir basalt can store 50 million tons or whatever. There isn't really one method in the in-situ mineralization community that people use to even assess a resource capacity. So that's a problem and something we need to address in science is how do we actually define storage capacity in a particular reservoir? Currently, because there's only been two methods deployed, one is pure phase CO2 injection and one is aqueous injection. The aqueous injection is all geochemical and it's all geochemists doing it. So their approach to resource assessment is largely geochemical, meaning how much calcium is in these rocks, how much magnesium, how much of those things will theoretically carbonate. Whereas the Wallula pilot and the kind of more geophysical approaches think about how much pore space is there? What's the volume difference between the initial silicate mineral and the secondary carbonate mineral? And so those two methods disagree and produce very different numbers. So um, it's really hard as a company in an industry to go to a funding agency or an investor and say, I have this reservoir with X million tons of capacity, fund my well, fund my permit. And because we really can't promise those numbers, we don't know enough, we need to do more field pilots and we really need better models. So that's something that really makes it 
extremely difficult and a huge uphill battle for a small storage technology started startup to get started in the U.S. I think Jack has mentioned this before. I've heard you say it's not a coincidence that the three early stage institute mineralization startups are all doing their pilots abroad because it's basically impossible <laughs> to do this in the U.S. Like you mentioned earlier, Naeem, there's a lot of mechanisms and emphasis on the capture technology and the DAC hubs and the DOE and FECM have rolled out a lot of funding and programs that support early stage capture technology startups. But the mechanisms we have in place to get storage projects off the ground are still kind of very low risk, emphasized on huge capacity reservoirs, like the low hanging fruit, if you will. And those mechanisms are really set up for deep pocketed oil and gas subsidiary project development companies that come and do this because they already have the data on those subsurface areas. They oftentimes already have characterization wells and they have really great models that come out of their industry. So there isn't a clear path for a, a small storage technology startup to do this in the U.S. right now at all. Before we get into some of the challenges that a company like Cell is experiencing in geologic storage in the United States, I wanted to touch on the primacy issue a little bit. Um, so, you know, most of permitting happens at the federal level, but there's a chance for states to have authority over its own permitting, something called primacy. And primacy for some well types is already in place, but only two states have primacy for class six wells, which are relevant to our conversation around carbon removal for the most part, Wyoming and North Dakota. And Louisiana submitted its application in 2021, and the EPA, I think, just opened up a 60-day public comment period to close in late June. Jack, can you tell us a little bit more about the application for primacy, why it's critical for more states to run their own class six programs? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that if it pops up in the news at all, primacy is talking about class six, but most states have primacy over classes one through five. What primacy means is the EPA evaluates an application put forth by a state agency and proves that the state agency is able to regulate themselves over a, a certain well class rather than the federal EPA doing it. So yeah, mo most states have primacy over classes one through five, and this is all available on the EPA's website. I mean, important to this conversation is most states have primacy over class two wells. So this is wells that are used for enhanced oil recovery, which do store some carbon dioxide as well. So then you look into class six, as you noted, only two, North Dakota and Wyoming, have primacy over their class six wells. Louisiana was approved by the EPA in the sense that they said the application was, was full and complete. And now there's a public comment period, which will certainly be interesting down in Louisiana. But primacy is important for a number of reasons. You know, most importantly, one, because we've seen the, the volume of, of requests that have gone in for class six wells into the federal EPA. And that's just going to be difficult to handle for anybody. These projects are CO2 storage projects highly technical, incredibly detail-oriented, and it takes time, money, and effort to be able to make sure that all of the necessary precautions to store CO2 safely in the subsurface have been taken into consideration for these projects. I mean, that takes time, and it should. We should make sure that none of these projects are done poorly. And, and would just note, as I do, I feel like every time I talk about storage, these projects have been being done correctly, right? At this point, over 300 million tons of CO2 globally We've stored since the 1990s, we've had no leaks, which is just 
an absurd safety record. And so CO2 storage is incredibly safe. One of the reasons why it's so safe in the United States is the incredibly well thought out regulations that the EPA has put into place. What primacy fundamentally means is that the federal EPA has said this state has the technical capabilities, has the resourcing capacities, has the ability to communicate effectively to communities who could be receiving geologic storage projects as they have all of those, and they can do them as well as the federal EPA can or better. So primacy is not something that's handed out willy-nilly. You don't just do a one-pager cover letter to, to the UIC program and get primacy. This is a long process that takes multiple years, and you'll only receive it if you have an incredibly well-run, well-staffed, well-resourced, technically sound program in order to inject CO2 into the subsurface. The reason it's important is because states, because they have their own dedicated process, they know their subsurface better than the federal EPA does, they're able to issue these permits faster. So North Dakota has already issued, I believe it's four class six permits in their state, which is double what the EPA has issued, federal EPA has issued. Wyoming has, has several in the hopper that they publicly said they can get out between six months and one year. Um, and so, yeah, primacy is one tool that allows for geologic storage to move faster in the United States. But I should also note, not every state should receive primacy and not every state will be applying for primacy. So this isn't a one-size-fits-all tool. We can't just have every single state applying and receiving primacy. It's for the states that, one, are going to be storing CO2 in, in large volumes. This is the first uh, state you would look at. And then two, the states that have the, the technical and resource capacity in, in order to do so. It sounds critical to me that we enable things to move a little bit more quickly on the permitting side through primacy, but we also maintain the stringency in these regulations that have led to the very safe track record we have so far in, in CO2 storage. So just to shift gears, I'd love Claire to hear more about the technology that Sela uses uh, and the geologic context in which this technology works best. And maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the work that's being done in Kenya and what made Kenya a good location for some of the, the early work that Sela is undertaking right now. Yeah, thanks. So I sort of mentioned earlier why I wanted to start this company and, and why now, but I just wanted to touch on something Jack said about how safe traditional storage is and the stringency that goes into these permits. Um, and I think I've heard Jen Wilcox say before that injecting CO2 into a class six permitted well is verification that it's permanent because that's how strict this is. And that's how difficult it is to get these permits. But I just wanted to say with a caveat that although I do believe that, and I do believe it's very safe and scalable, and I think that that will be a major, if not the leading, probably the leading way that we store CO2 in this country, particularly because of our our resource in that sense, there's certainly a, a premium and a value placed on in-situ mineralization, particularly in the negative emissions and the voluntary carbon removals market. So people really are interested in in-situ mineralization. I think there's a very strong public acceptance of this. People just really like the idea of actually converting the CO2 to never being CO2 again. And that's something that's really important. So, so that and all the really amazing work that's been done in the two pilots that I mentioned earlier really warranted more effort and more emphasis on the potential of this particular technology. So that in conjunction with the fact that not everywhere in the world has the same sedimentary basin storage resources that we have in the U.S. There's a lot of places that don't have other options except for igneous rocks. 
And so if you kind of think about how complicated transportation and pipeline regimes are going to look like once we kind of maxed out the capacity in the places that there is a lot of sedimentary basin storage. And I don't mean storage capacity. I mean, delivery of CO2 capacity, because that's the bottleneck, <laughs> unless you're going to hook up every power plant and emission source in the U.S. to tons of pipelines to transport to Louisiana or the Permian or Illinois or whatever, which is no small task. I mean, it's going to be difficult and take a lot of time. So we really do need an alternative storage technology that can be available for these sites that there aren't other options, like the Pacific Northwest or like places in South America and really Interestingly to me is India, a place where CO2 emissions are just projected to rise for the next couple decades, and they don't have other options. So I really wanted to kind of commercialize and develop this technology so that it's available for places that, that need it. So I mentioned earlier, we're working on a novel method of injecting pure phase CO2 into basalts. And the goal there is really to try to bridge the space between the traditional storage industry works in sedimentary basins with supercritical CO2 and the current state-of-the-art for mineralization, which is injecting water with CO2 in it. So there's a lot of room in between to develop a new technology and take to market something that leverages what we currently know about injecting and monitoring pure phase CO2 and figures out a way to how can we apply this to this new type of rock and really optimize these existing methods specifically for mineralization. So that's what what we're working on at Sela. And so one of the reasons that we're getting started in Kenya, my co-founder's based out of Nairobi, there's a ton of stakeholders working in Kenya, the Climate Action Platform Africa and the Africa Climate Ventures and many other people have been working on laying the groundwork and the foundation to grow a carbon removal industry in Kenya for, for years now. I just kind of joined at the last minute and there's huge potential for Kenya to be a global leader in carbon removal, and I could do a whole other podcast as to why that is. But basically, it's a, this geology that can store CO2. It's volcanic rift valley, so similar to Iceland, and there's a massive surplus of renewable energy. So like what Jack was saying earlier about the difference between theoretical capacity and what I like to call deployable capacity of these technologies, the major bottleneck really is never storage. It's always, where's the CO2 coming from and how are you powering the processes that get that CO2? So there's a lot of places in the world where DAC and CDR make a ton of sense. Unfortunately, not everywhere in the world has the same incentives that Jack was mentioning earlier, but I still think that we should make every effort to get these technologies off the ground in places where they make a lot of sense, just fundamentally based on on resources like storage and, and renewable energy. So that's why I really believe that Kenya can be a global leader in the carbon removal space is because they have deep engineering expertise and from the geothermal industry that's been around forever. It's the eighth largest in the world, larger than the one in Iceland, co-located with this geology. But really the first piece of getting this off the ground is to prove that there's storage. <laughs> and yeah, no DAC company is going to come to Kenya to deploy a project until we've done our pilot. So that's really the main objective for the next year and is to do a successful pilot injection, both demonstrating our technology and also to really get this industry off the ground. So we've been working with 
the geothermal companies who know a lot about their reservoirs and who drilled a bunch of holes into them to sort of partner with them. And the, the way the regulatory framework works, there's a strong existing framework to go off of that was built around this geothermal industry. So it's a pretty clear path to, to doing this. It's basically similar to what's happening in Iceland. I mean, the only commercial institute mineralization project happening was is it in Iceland in conjunction with the geothermal plant. So sort of the next best place in the world to go is Kenya and the Rift Valley there. That's really cool. And it's it's always interesting to see direct air capture and carbon removal paired with storage happening in other parts of the world and learning from those experiences. I think we could totally do an entire podcast on Sela and and all of the different projects that are happening, not just in Kenya, but how you're thinking about carbon storage globally and, and the work that you're thinking about beyond beyond Kenya. I was wondering how can people get in touch and learn more about about what you're working on? You can find me on LinkedIn or follow Sela Minerals on Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram and follow what we're up to. We're going to step up our social media game at some point soon. It's not my strong suit, but we're going to hire someone to do that. And yeah, I hope you guys follow along as we execute on our pilot experiment and feel free to get in touch with me. Thank you. And Jack, I can't think of someone who understands the storage landscape in the U.S. better than you. How do people learn more about what you're working on and get in touch with you? If anyone's heard me before, they know that I am completely neurotic about tweeting about geologic storage all the time. So last name, first name on Twitter. I have a substack called Carbon Miners Club. You can find that link in, in the Twitter bio or, you know, send me a DM, hit me up on LinkedIn. I, I truly am willing to talk to, to anybody at any time about geologic storage or anything to do with carbon management. So yeah, reach out in any of those avenues and always happy to have a conversation and really appreciate you having us on tonight. Love, love the pod and happy to talk about my favorite climate technology. Jack, I got to say, I love the newsletter. That's a great Substack. I'm shocked that Twitter is still letting you link to it in any way, shape or form, but I'm glad it's still there. And we'll put it in the show notes just in case Elon Musk decides he doesn't want you to have your uh, link to your Substack on your Twitter. Thank you both for getting really deep on the subject. I thought it was really educational. I learned a ton. I hope our listeners learned a ton and I hope they get in touch with you in the coming weeks and we'll keep an eye on all the great progress you're making. Thank you again for the work you're doing and for the time on the show today. I really appreciate it. 